The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night. It's the ninth day of October 2022. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is with us as always right across the way. Happy to welcome you aboard tonight. Uh, Very glad you could be with us. Got some great stuff in store for you tonight. Up first, we'll speak to former New York Liberty star and present-day oyster farmer, Sue Wicks. She's going to join us. In the second half, we'll welcome in the former Houston Colt 45 Astro Met Brave, and he was the last Brooklyn Dodger to appear in a major league game. Bob Aspromonte visit us. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy this edition of Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. As always, we got some great people, great sports talk, great memories up ahead. May I talk to you about social media for a second? Social media, we are out there. We are on Facebook, WGBB Sports Talk New York. You'll find show information, sports information, so much more. So check that out. We are on LinkedIn. We are on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. You can follow me on Twitter at B Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't you worry about it because all past shows are out on the website at am1240wgbb.com. Well, our first guest, a native of Santa Riches, she attended Rutgers University, went on to star in the WNBA for the New York Liberty. She is a member of the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame and presently a very successful oyster farmer here on Long Island. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight Sue Wicks. Sue, good evening. How are you, Bill? I'm so great. excited to be on the show. Great to have you with us, Sue. It's it's tremendous to have you aboard, and I can say welcome aboard to you because I know you're a, a seafaring woman, so that certainly applies tonight. It, it definitely helps. <laughs> I mean, I used to need sports. Um, analogies, but now these, you know, maritime ones will help me through. There we go. Okay, so now tell us a little bit, Sue, about growing up in Santa Riches from Eastern Long Island. Where in in, uh, in Nassau County uh, you played out east in small gyms, small schools, South Hold, Shelter Island, Eastport. Tell us a little bit about growing up on the East End. Uh, I'll tell you what, Bill, that was, it was just a different time, a different era when, um, Long Island was just a little less developed. The East End, the North Fork, they had small schools that could barely field a team. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the population boom out here, it's, it's incredible. But back then it was just, you know, you'd drive out to Greenport and play in a tiny gym that was definitely not official, um, regulation size against a team that had maybe six girls on it and um it was just you know the lights were dim no one was in the stands it was just a long time ago in sports and i came on back and i was coaching my niece at sin Merchant high school and the way that all um scholastic sports have developed but especially girls basketball even on the east end of long island the tiniest schools had 
a cheer team, a coaching staff, people in the stand, the halftime show, and that was certainly not the case for me in the beginning of Title IX. It was a different world. Interesting, yeah, how things change with, with the population boom out here, Sue, that's for sure. Now, who were your favorite teams and your favorite players uh, when you were a kid? I, I was a diehard Knicks fan, and that was also, you know, this was before it was cable television and the satellites, you got your local home team. You watched the New York Knicks. That was your choice um, every every night, and I loved the New York Knicks. Um, I loved Hubie Brown when he was the coach. Mm-hmm. I just thought he was a genius. And my all-time favorite player, Bernard King, one of the greatest Knicks of all time. Yeah, we've had Bernard on the program. Very great guy, very great guy. I'd like to get Yubi on because Yubi was a coach I went to Gus Alfieri's basketball camp, Sue, up in St. Anthony's, and uh, Yubi was one of the guest coaches there, and uh, he taught us some great stuff, taught us the Maravich drill and all that kind of stuff. But I I grew up with the Knicks, but uh, probably the era before you, with the uh, world championship teams with with Clyde and Willis Reed and David DeBusher and Dollar Bill, and then we also had the Nets with Dr. J, who grew up just up the road from here, and uh, it was a, a great time for for Long Island basketball. But I, I can definitely see those teams. I used to like Sue those uniforms with the New York on the bottom of the of the number. Remember those? Oh yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. And a little bit of trivia, um, when I played for the Liberty, Richie Adubato was an assistant oh. to those famous um, Nick teams with um, Bernard King back in the day. So some of the stuff, some of the themes that he had, especially using a second unit for pressing to use as many players, I think was from Hubie Brown. So I think I got to study a little bit of Richie Adubato, our fantastic coach in New York, by watching Hubie Brown all those years. Nice, yeah. The Coach Brown is certainly a Hall of Famer, as we know. Now, oh, you, yeah. you played your college career as a Scarlet Knight at Rutgers. Tell us a little bit about your college career. I'll tell you what, I, I couldn't have picked a better place to play basketball. I just... Um, I loved it there, the Rutgers faithful, filling the rack. Um, we were one of the few women's schools at the time that would have sellouts in our 10,000-seat arena, and we actually outdrew the men. Um, women's basketball, it was just a hub in the country at that time, um, and we got you know, so much attention from the um, New York City media. Um, it was just a wonderful time in women's basketball. Um, I loved it. They just celebrated their um, only national championship team, 1982, when they won the last AIAW championship. And there's going to be a documentary out on that, Forgotten Champions. Um, and just, you know, just celebrated again Title IX at Rutgers this year, one of the first schools to hire a full-time women's basketball coach. So a little piece of history there. Nice. Okay. Now, you went on to play, Sue, after you graduated Italy, Japan, Spain, Israel, over in Europe, because the WA wasn't, the WNBA was not around yet. Yeah, and I gotta tell you, Bill, I felt blessed to have the opportunity. When I was a girl in high school, I, I don't even know if that opportunity existed. So when I was in college and I heard I could play in Europe and make a couple of dollars, I was like, 
you know, I've been dreaming about doing this my whole life and to be a professional, even if it was in um, Budapest, even if it was in Tel Aviv, even if it was in um, wherever it was on the map in Turkey, um, Spain, I wanted to play basketball. I would have played anywhere. So for 10 years, you know, played in relatively, you know, obscurity. Um, people forgot about that generation of players that I'm part of. And um, the WNBA started um, in 97, and it was a dream come true. Now, you were chosen by the Liberty, as we know, Sue, but you only wanted to play in New York, right? That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, I had played in Europe for 10 years, and if I was coming home, I was playing for New York. So during, um, you got interviewed by all the GMs, and um, every one of them that was in front of the Liberty had a pick. Um, I think Tina Thompson was going to be number one, but the second um, pick, the third pick, the fourth, and the fifth were wide open, and they all called me in for an interview, said they wanted to draft me, and I was like, I'm not playing anywhere except New York. And I, I wasn't bluffing. Um, I was at that stage in my career. I didn't know what the WNBA was going to look like. I had dreams and hopes. But I had already been a professional in Europe. I figured I was just going back there rather than – and there's nothing wrong with Utah. I'm going to say Utah. I didn't want to play in Utah. Mm -hmm. I wanted to play in Madison Square Garden like Bernard played in Madison Square Garden. And that was my dream, and I wasn't ready to compromise that. And um, lo and behold, they they all let me go. And New York Liberty, Carol Blaze Jalski, the Hall of Fame basketball player, um, picked me. And it was a match made in heaven. Nice. Yeah, what a story that is, Sue. A, a hometown girl does good. Now, if you can, tell us a little bit about your feelings Playing in the garden, as as we said, you grew up a Nick fan with uh, Bernard King, your favorite. Looking up at that fabled ceiling and uh, playing in in the mecca, as we call it. Give us your feelings on that, Sue. And I'll just you know color it in a little bit. Um, all those Nicks that you're talking about: um, Earl Monroe, Walt Clyde Frazier, David Busher, rest in peace. They were all coming um, to meet us. They were all excited about this WNBA team, so they would come and be sitting in the front row with these games. And, I, you know, as a basketball fan and a lover of this game, it was like a dream, like I was caught in a dream, like why is Earl Apparel Monroe sitting at the game and knows my first name? I mean, am I dreaming? So, and Dave DeBusher, you know, having those conversations with Bill Bradley, it's like these guys are beyond, these, they're like myths. For me, they weren't even on um, my my idols because they were already legends in New York, and here they are being so supportive and kind to me um, and the rest of my team. So we're, we're in Madison Square Garden. We have our own locker room. My name is in the locker room. Um, I go out, you know, through that tunnel that you know Willis Reed came out of oh, that yeah. famous tunnel, and. I stand there and I get to do my national anthem and with my hand over my heart, I, I'm crying. And it wasn't just the first game that I stood there and cried because it was a miracle that this happened in my life as far as I was concerned. These were all my dreams um, came true. And to play in that garden, to hear my own national anthem after playing 10 years in Europe, to have my family in the stands, um, and basketball players that I idolized, 
um, whether they were current NBA players or these legends, coming out and supporting us and um, cheering us on and wishing us well. It was it was one of those, you know, miracle years in women's sports, um, and, and, and that was, it'll always be earmarked 1997, that, those first games. Wonderful painting of the picture for us, Sue. Sue Wicks is with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, you made four trips to the finals, Sue, three against the Houston Comets, one against uh, Lisa Leslie and the L.A. Sparks. Does that leave a little bit of a hole in, in, in the resume that you guys weren't able to bring the, the championship home to New York? Well, Bill, it leaves a hole in my heart, and, and thanks for bringing it back up for me. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you get that close. Um, Yeah. It's tough. Any athlete is going to tell you because you full-on, 100% believe are committed that you're going to win that thing. And you give one. You just figure, I'm just going to give all my heart. I'm going to work as hard as I can. We're going to give everything. We're going to win this. And then when you come up short, and we went all the way, you know, those five-game series to the fifth game down to the last minute in all four of those games. We just ran out of time. And unfortunately, we ran out of time four times in a row. Um, And that was heartbreaking. And, you know, we'll still see the the women's basketball world is small. So I'll see Cheryl Swoops and I'll see Cynthia Cooper, Tina Thompson, and Lisa Leslie and um, if they know we're going to be their Liberty players, they wear their rings. You know, those rings are big and bulky, just like the men's championship rings. They don't wear them all the time. They wear them so we can see them. And it's, um, you know, to also give us a little pain. But that's um, that's the way sports are. You know, you, you want to be a champion. And anything short of that, um, you know, you feel. You feel forever. And um, But the one thing, the consolation is, I know we gave 100%, and I know that we pushed um, Houston and we pushed L.A. to play at a different level, and those were all great um, series, and they they grew the game of women's basketball, those televised games, um, and the rivalries that we had. So it was great to be part of that. Yes, I wish I had a ring, Mm -hmm. um, but I do not. But you guys uh, took a hell of a ride with all of us. That was that's for sure. Now, you were elected to the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in June of 2013. You you uh, spoke about Pat Summit and her leadership and her contributions to women's basketball. Of course, the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, for those uh, who may be unfamiliar, is in Knoxville, Tennessee. Tell us a little bit about being elected to the, to the Hall of Fame, Sue. It was so emotional, and, I, you know, I've been retired for 10 years, um, and it hit me, you know, like um, in a strange way because it knocks you right into some, you know, past memories, reliving things, and being honored for something, that lifetime um, achievement of what you did in your career makes you look back on it. So it filled, my, it filled me with gratitude, and, you know, you're mentioning Pat Summit. Um, she was, I remember when I was in college, she was still a young woman, you mm-hmm. know, and she, it was the beginning of women's basketball being super popular, and she drove that wave. Um, so I always admired Coach Summit, and I got to play um, in Europe with some of her um, former players and the way that they spoke about her, and it was always a lesson that she taught them that was, they carried 
through their life. It was like she was always right there with them coaching because she taught them lessons that came up that they were going to need um, to navigate life. So she's one of those people. She's gone now, but her impact um, that lives in the players that um, played for her and also women's basketball, um, how we um, – always pay tribute to how she gave herself 100% passionately to this game. Definitely. Pat Summit uh, will live on. I always remember, Sue, seeing her uh, orange, uh, Lady Val orange suit up in Springfield in one of the glass yeah. cases. So, so tremendous. And as you say, she did so much for, the, for for women's basketball and will remember Pat forever. We're speaking with Sue Wicks tonight on the program. Want to get to the current day, Sue, because it's exciting, exciting news, exciting stuff. What sparked your interest in, uh, in the water and in oysters? Well, Bill, it's, um, you know, my family has been on Long Island and working on the waters for a, a long time. So I kind of grew up with that. You know, I grew up um, going out on my dad's boat or um, my great-grandfather's um, boat yard and just always being around the water. Everyone had a story, and every story ended up being um, at the beach, at the bay. Um, you know, we caught these steamers. We caught these clams. We made this dinner. Oh, we went out there. So it was, it's just a part of my whole life. Like so many Long Islanders, a lot of our stories are surrounded on this water. Mm -hmm. My connection just happened to be that a lot of people in my family earned a living um, working on the water. So I always um, like to come back home to Long Island, no matter where I was, living in Europe or New York City. I always wanted to come home and to reset myself and um, Mauritius Bay. Um, was always that spot for me, that special place in the world, that touchstone that reset me and reminded me of where I come from. Nice. Now, as you say, you have a family history on the water, Sue. Your dad was a bayman, but it goes back further than that, doesn't it? It sure does. I mean, um, all of it um, goes all the way back till. Um, Maybe some of the first early settlers on Long Island um, were here that my family came. Um, and they were had to be farmers, and they had to be fishermen, because there was no, uh, you know, King Cullen. There was no supermarket. This is it. You're here. Right. <laughs> so you better learn how to live off the land. And it was a plentiful um, um, place with a lot of hard work. Um, and, you know, you talk about history and how things are. I mean, they definitely coexisted with the Native Americans um, here. They, they they learned those things. This is before. There was no other place to go. There was that early settlers in 1620 when they arrived here. Tell us a little bit, Sue, about the oyster industry on Long Island today. So we have been on a... I'm going to say a 20-year run of aquaculture and farming here on Long Island, and it's still in its infancy. Um, I, I would say we have about 12 to 15 um, full-time farmers on Long Island, and we're reviving um, an industry that used to be amazingly, amazingly more abundant than it is now. I would say we're at 2%, 1% of what it once was. And that all that goes for the clams, the hard clams as well. 
Um, we are just, our stock, the health of the bay has just, you know, reached a critical point. So oyster farming and um, the sugar kelp um, crop that I also grow, um, it helps the health of the water. It filters the water. It lowers the um, acidity of the water. Um, and all of these things are contributing to the mortality of a lot of these hard shell um, creatures in their, in their early stages when they're a little too fragile. So oyster farming steps in, and we can grow this great um, product again. Uh, and it is. You know, it's the same um, oyster, except we grow it in a little bit different conditions. And um, our dream is to, you know, build it right back up that, um, you know, Long Island is famous for our clams. We're famous for our oysters to get us back to that place. Right. I remember, Sue, when when I was younger, uh, the bay off Babylon Village Used to be full of clamors. You'd see, you, you you couldn't get a spot out there. There there were just clam boat after clam boat. I I had friends that that used to clam, and uh, it it was a huge industry on the island. It sure was. I mean, that was when um, you know, it was a summer job for teachers. And right. Every everybody um had a part time job. You know, you can hear those stories. That that connection. And when I'm doing the oyster farming, um, I love that connection because. It's almost inevitable someone will come up to me um, and say, oh, you're doing that oyster farming. You know, let me tell you about going on my dad's boat. Let me tell you about when I clammed um, that summer, you know, to save for school. And every Long Islander has a story. Oh, we used to go, you know, treading for clams over here. And mm-hmm. I just love that because it's, um, it's something that I love. It's like when we talk about sports, when we talk about um, whatever, basketball, for me, another place that feels um, connected to other people is that love of our um, our bays and um, the abundance of these bays and, and, and what what they once held and those memories. So I love to share that. That's one of my favorite things to share with another person: the passion, the love, mm-hmm. and connection to these bays. Exactly. Now. You have your own company. Tell us a little bit about that. Plus, give us a rundown of what a day is like for you uh, these days. Sure. So it's Violet Cove Oyster Company. Mm-hmm. And I have like a three-acre plot where I grow, I would say, about 600,000 oysters wow. um, a year. And it's a very, you know beautiful, gentle type of business. I'm not trying to, um, you know, make a ton of money. I'm not trying to expand. I'm trying to enjoy myself. I'm trying to enjoy the water. I'm trying to make a nice product. Um, and that's really where I'm at with my, um, with my business. It gives me so much joy to be able to do what I want to do, to still be young enough, fit enough, um, to do all the physical labor. So we get up, you know, right around sunrise. That's the best time to go out on the water, right when the day's waking up. Um, my boat's right in front of my house, about a 10 or 12-minute commute right down the bay, um, and just watching the world wake up. That's my It's my favorite part of the day, <laughs> watching that sun, the, the colors, the birds singing, um, the gulls crying, and just, you know, going right across. Um, to my farm, um, jumping in the water and, and tending to them and nurturing them um, until they're 
old enough for me to sell for people to eat. Yeah. <laughs> so I care for them tenderly until I hand them over to be eaten. We we really uh, don't appreciate sometimes uh, where we live. Like you say, the appreciation for the water, for the bays, uh, just for the sunrises. Uh, I used to go down to by the Fire Island Lighthouse and shoot the sunrise with, wow. with, with an old Pentax camera. And uh, I loved it because every day was different. There wasn't there wasn't uh, one that was like the the next. And uh, it, it's just so beautiful. That's so true. And I could I could see Sue exactly your appreciation for just getting up and getting out there in the morning and uh, just great. <laughs> yeah, I mean I missed it my whole life. I had you know. Uh, I feel like I was blessed and had so many adventures, lived in Europe, got to be a professional basketball player, did a little television, had all these great things, lived in New York City, the center of the world. I always missed Long Island. I always missed that, you know, that the smell of the, um, you know, the seaweed on the tide and the salt and the, you know, standing in the water, just looking at the sparkles from the sun. I mean, I missed it, you know, as soon as I left for Rutgers, I always missed um, that connection I had um, with the water. So it is a blessing. And, I, you know, I'm just, um, I feel so fortunate that I can come home um, as a Long Islander and still afford to live here and um, be able to um, do something that I'm passionate about and in love with. Nice. Now, what does the future hold for you, Sue? What, what, what's out there? Um, I think I'm just taking it day by day, mm -hmm. um, enjoying it. Um, you know, we do, um, sugar kelp is our next big crop. This is, um, it, it's a really restorative crop for, um, the bay. And it also has so many, um, applications, whether it's pharmaceutical, um, cosmetics and food fertilizers. It's kind of a miracle crop. Um, so, I am really looking forward to that. And this is an industry that is 100% in its infancy. Um, I have an application in to sell it um, commercially, and I think I'm one of two people. So in New York State, I'll only be this, you know, maybe I'll be the first or the second to be able to grow it um, commercially. I'm competitive, so I hope I'm the first just for so I can say it. Mm -hmm. And to start, this um, this industry that um, I think could be really great for Long Island. There's so many possibilities um, for us to create jobs in um, that industry that doesn't exist. So you were talking about in Babylon when it was standing room only across the bay, mm -hmm. you know, with people on their boats. That does not exist anymore. That no. man, that woman, that was that independent spirit that went out there with their own hard labor and work and did it, um, you know, got paid for that day's work, that type of work doesn't exist anymore. That individual, I'm going to um, do my own thing on the boat. And to be part of reintroducing that again um, is exciting for me. I don't know where it goes, but um, my idea of the template in my mind from sports is you just do your best. You do your best. And, you know, when we were pioneers with the WNBA, um we're going to do our best to ensure this is here for the next generation to play, for the next generations of girls to play. So my thought certainly, Bill, with the um, I'm a big dreamer on the aquaculture 
is to revitalize and restart um, this Long Island Heritage 2.0 diversion, um, that it, it's suitable for the health of our bay. It's going to remediate um, and, and rehab our bays so they're healthier and create jobs for a certain type of person. And I hate to say it, but it's like the, the um, archetypal um, American individual um, type of job. You know, you, you do your thing and you do honest hard work and you, you just, you're in charge of your own destiny with it. And, um, certainly that's what I admired about my father and my grandfather and my great grandfather. They owned themselves. They were their own men and they, they knew they were going to do some hard work and they had extreme confidence in them themselves. And I think that certainly helped me in sports because that is a critical ingredient for any athlete to have is you're investing in yourself and believing in yourself all the time. And um, for me, I had other jobs, but it's not till I come back and I'm working on the water that I had that, um, that sensation. Okay, whatever you do today, whatever you put into this, you will be paid accordingly. You, you know, you're going to know the value of a dollar at the end of the today. Wonderful dreams, wonderful plans, Sue. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show tonight. Uh, hometown girl, thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us here at GBB, Sue. I wish you all the best, and we'll keep in touch with you. God bless, and thank you, Bill, so much. I really enjoyed it and appreciate it. That is Sue Wicks, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll welcome in former Brooklyn Dodger Bob Aspermonte. Stick around, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBB Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB. Hope everyone is having a wonderful weekend, uh, gorgeous fall weekend uh, in New York this holiday weekend. Columbus Day, of course, coming up tomorrow. Playoff baseball, the Yankees uh, waiting for the Guardians on Tuesday. That'll uh, take place. Uh, the Mets deciding their fate tonight. Uh, they will either face the Dodgers next or they will face the long, cold winter. And as of now, they are behind 4 nothing to the Padres. And as usual... Uh, has been the story so many times this season. Uh, no hits. The offense has been stagnant, so uh, we'll let that be and revisit that later on. Our next guest, he's a native of Brooklyn, USA, graduated from Lafayette High School, also attended by Sandy Koufax and by our guest from a few weeks ago, Pete Falcone. He played for the Houston Colt 45s and the Astros, 
the Braves, and, of course, the Mets. And he is the last Brooklyn Dodger to play in a major league game. He's a member of the Astros Hall of Fame, the Texas Baseball Hall of Fame, and he will be enshrined in the New York Baseball Hall of Fame in 2023. It's an honor and a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight Bob Aspermonte. Bob, good evening. Good evening, Bill. Great being with you. Great having you aboard, Bob. Great having you. Now, when you were a kid growing up uh, in Bensonhurst, who were your teams, who were your players uh, back when you were a kid? Well, what's so interesting about that, my two older brothers actually played professionally as well. Right. So they guided that little youngster in the Little League and all the way to Grasshopper and then to Lafayette High School. We had incredible young players that played baseball throughout our Brooklyn area. It was fantastic. And uh, you weren't a Dodger fan, though, growing up in Brooklyn. <laughs> no, I was a Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle fan. Oh, boy. Kid. Yeah, okay. <laughs> there's, there's something, folks. Something different for you. But, uh, yeah, that, that's fine. That's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll let you go with that, Bob. Now, okay. uh, we, we remember you, you got the first hit uh, for the Colt 45s. Do you remember who you hit it off? Well, you're going to have to help me with that one. I, th- I think it was Don Cardwell of, right. of the Cubs. <laughs> now, of, you, the, of the Cubs. Right. Yeah. You, you were the first Houston player to homer in the new Astrodome. That was against Vernon Law. Uh, first home run in the Astrodome. That's pretty good. Yeah, that, that was quite a bit, especially not being a homer hitter. Right. And when you look at it, it was really very exciting, especially when you're just opening up the Dome Stadium which is one of the most incredible things that were done for baseball and uh, for Houston as well. And it was just very special to be part of that. Yeah, I can imagine, Bob, definitely. Now, as we said in the open, the last active player in baseball, you retired in 71 to wear the uniform of the Brooklyn Dodgers. You had one at bat for Brooklyn in September of 56 as an 18-year-old coming out of Lafayette. Do you remember that one at bat for Brooklyn, Bob? Oh, do I remember that, Bill. (laughs) Great story. That 18-year-old kid took the field with a Dodger uniform, and Walt Olson, the manager, says, Bobby, I want you to go field some ground balls uh-huh. with Jackie Robinson, Pee Reese, and Gil Hodges. My body wouldn't move. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. And I eventually went over and started fielding some ground balls with him. And the greatest thing about it, and Jackie says, Bobby, your glove is more like an outfielder's glove. Here, use my glove. And I used his glove as we were warming up. And just finally, when we finalized the infield workout, I said, oh, Jackie, thank you. And said, Bobby, you keep that glove. Well, I played with that glove for a couple of years, and that glove is still very close to me right now. Oh, boy, that must be some keepsake. Jackie oh, Robinson, what a, yeah, lending what you a, his mitt. What yeah. an incredible feeling that was, how nice he was. He took care of me quite a bit. And Gil Hodges is a very special guy, boy, I'm telling you. What happened that day was, uh, as Bob says, folks, Walter Alston sent him to pinch hit for Sandy Amaros, a uh, couple of line drives off Don Don Little, but uh, ended up taking a strikeout. But that's not the real story. The real story was the young kid coming up playing for Brooklyn. And what a thrill that Jackie Robinson gave you his glove and really took you under his wing. Right, Bob? Oh, that, it really, you talk about bringing back memories. I'm so close with that. It comes back to most of my conversations. I bring that up when we talk about baseball. That was an incredible thrill for an 18-year-old kid. I can imagine. Now, 
Uh, you, you finally made the opening day roster for the Dodgers in 1960. Maury Wills at short, Jim Gilliam second base, Charlie Neal, Daryl Spencer. Uh, you, you had limited playing time, but right. you, you, uh, were able to play at the Coliseum. How was it playing at the LA Coliseum when, when the Dodgers first moved out there? But that was a weird setup. It was incredibly weird, but you yeah. had that short left field fence and you had a lot of home run balls, the fly balls that go over that grilling. And so it was interesting to see the, some of the changes in the game, how quickly that happened. But right. it was, it was just so special to be with those players at that age and watch the growth of the Dutchery, the Dodgers and the change to LA was, was kind of a special. And uh, then when they opened up that stadium in 62, it was very, very outstanding. Oh, yeah. One of the best ever is the Chavez Ravine. Still is. Yeah, yes. Still is. Now, uh, the expansion draft in 62 comes along. Uh, I can imagine being a local boy. You wanted to go to New York, but you were picked by Houston. But uh, Paul Richards won the coin toss and took you to Houston. That was really, I was looking forward to the opportunity of going back home, but at the same time with a new franchise and Paul Richards, he took me right away, which each player that was selected, they reduced it by five players. So the Dodgers thought they were able to keep me. But he took me so quickly, it was the greatest, greatest thing that happened to me. To start a new franchise, a young kid at the same time, and watch the incredible growth of what took place baseball-wise in Houston, but for my career as well. Do you still have uh, your Colt 45 jersey, Bob? Yes, I do. You do? Well, yeah, cause I, I do, yeah. I always, I love the throwback uniforms. Sometimes they'll wear them today, and, and they'll go back and wear a Colt 45. I always like that logo on the front of that jersey. That, oh, that's we had, one of my favorites. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the Colt 45 for three years, and then we went into the Astrodome, and naturally that's a perfect name for the Astrodome with the astronauts. And it worked out so well. I had all the astronauts were throwing out balls to the starting lineup at 65, and I had Alan Shepard throw me the ball, and we became so close and for a long, long time. I was going to ask feeling. you about that, Bob. Yeah, uh, Alan Shepard, the, the first uh, American in space, That's threw right. out the first ball at the Astrodome. Bob caught that ball, and uh, what a thrill. Uh, tell us a little bit about Alan Shepard. Oh, he was such a special guy, I'm telling you. In so many ways, he was so down to earth and all the success he's had and enjoyed. But we started businesses together. We were the, I started the beer business on one part of the Houston and he was on the other side. So uh-huh. our relationship continued on for a long time. And it was just, just a very special guy. It made you feel so comfortable. And, and what he's accomplished was a great. One story I wanted, we have Bob Aspermonte with us tonight on the program. One story I wanted to revisit with you that I read on, on the Sabre website, Bob, was about yeah. a, a young kid by the name of Billy Bradley. Oh, boy. Tell us a little bit, of, give us the background, <laughs> fill us in on the story about Billy Bradley. Bill, this is the most incredible thing that happened in my career. Yeah. It is a divine intervention story. When you look at this nine-year-old boy from Millerock, Arkansas, who was playing Little League Baseball, and bad weather comes in, they come, they all had the team walk off the field, but Billy went under the, this massive tree where the water fountain was, 
and was struck by lightning and blinded. And he comes to Houston, and we all have his special care and doctors by the Astros. And uh, at that time, I was his favorite player, so they called me and said, Bobby, would you sign some autographs? I said, where is Billy? Well, he's in the hospital. Then they told me the story. So I visited him in the hospital, and at that time, I only—I think he was—he was the only favorite player I had. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> the <fan> I had. <laughs> <laughs> so I went by. We had a great conversation, but he was all bandaged up. And what a pleasant kid. We talked for ten, fifteen minutes, and as I was leaving, he says, "Bobby, would you hit me a home run?" I looked at him. I said, "Billy, <laughs> I'll give you my best, best effort." Yeah. Last of the ninth inning, bases loaded. I hit a grand slam home run for him. Amazing. And then the story continues on. He's operated a week later, and it lasted for two or three months on one side of the eye, and comes back and takes the family to lunch, and he asked the same question, Bobby, would you hit me another home run? I said, <laughs> Billy, would you accept a couple of base hits? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, no, Bobby, hit me another home run. Last of the 10th inning, 2-2, side. I hit another grand slam for him. Amazing. An incredible story. So yeah. Everybody, everybody, this one's for you, but it went all, well, I, it went across the nation, you know, because the, the announcers and everybody picked it up baseball wise. So it was, it was, it was an incredible time then. And then the kid comes back. He all went along. He's on the third operation. He comes back in April the following year. We're talking all went along. Uh-huh. He comes back and says, Took the family to lunch, and it's so great to see him looking so well. And then he finishes up again. Bobby, would you hit me a home run I can see? I said, oh, boy, that body wouldn't work. I said, Billy, I'm going to do it, Billy, because I'm getting an awful lot of help doing this. You're talking about it, the real divine adventure story. Right, right. First inning, bases loaded, I hit another Grand Slam home run. <laughs> I mean, the story goes on, and the most important part of it also, two years later, he's around 11, 12 years old, and each time the story would go out, this one's for you, Billy, so it went all across the city. Everybody would say, this one's for you, Billy, this one's for you. I get an article in the Oxford paper headline, this one's for you, Bobby. He pitched a seven-inning no-hit game at the age of 12. Wow. What a way to, what a, what a incredible feeling, I mean. It's, it's a very, very special thing. It really is. And and uh, I had never heard that story, Bob. And uh, when, oh, I, when I when I read it on the Saber website, I said, "This is one of the most amazing baseball stories I've ever, I've ever heard." And uh, I <laughs> I think more people should know about this. Well, you know, Fox Sports did a heck of a job passing it across the country with a massive one-hour show. Yeah, and it was really it was really special. But it, it was a uh, it, it, I tell you, it was, it, it was it excited so many people here in Houston. It was very special. Is is he still with us, Billy Bradley? No, he, he still is, and he, he's having some problems, but he's doing fairly well. Okay. But, the, but it's it's been a, like I said, the relationship has been going on for a long time. Well, we wish him the best if he's out there, oh, Billy Bradley. What, what, what a tremendous story from Bob Aspermonte, who's with us tonight yeah. on Sports Talk New York. Now, April 9th, 1965, Bob, uh, an, another famous moment you're involved in. Mickey Mantle hits the first home run in the Astrodome. You remember that one? Oh, do I remember? <laughs> yeah. 
I was a big supporter of Mickey Mantle. Yeah, a, he was, he was your, one of your boys. Yeah. That's right. So when he circled the bases, I was kind of saying, oh, Mickey, I'm glad it's you, but I didn't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> but we had a great time. Oh, that was very special, really. When he asked to go, you couldn't believe that first night at the Astros. What a setting. I can imagine. Mm. For, what a place. Now, what a place. Now, there was, there's a story out there also, Bob, about, uh, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy when he, when he passed away and left us back in 1968. Uh, the players were given the option by the commissioner whether they wanted to play or not. Now, some, some of the Houston ball players opted not to play. The Pittsburgh Pirates as well. But then, uh, Owner ownership took uh, variance took to that. Control of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It it was a very difficult decision because I was kind of a semi-player rep with Rusty and so on. And I think what we, what we noticed that everybody was ready, and so touched by what happened. And then when it was changed the last minute, the strong feeling we had, we couldn't. I couldn't change that. Yeah, I wanted it. It's a special day that what what would what happened. You gotta recognize how bad that was. And, and when it was changed, I couldn't know how to stay out of the game. And so did Rusty and Stav, yeah. Yeah. But it was a, got a lot of nice response from the family when I did that. Nice. Very nice, Bob. The Kennedy family really responded on that. I wanted to ask you, being, being a Met fan and being from New York here, Rusty was, was a very special guy in our hearts here in New York. Tell us a little bit about playing with Rusty Starr back in the day in Houston. Well, Rusty joined the ball club about the, the second year with mm-hmm. the Colt 45s, and the, and the kid had so much talent. And at that time, I, I say kid because he was a lot younger. Right. And when, when he when he reacted, and he had the ability to hit so well and control the way he swung at all these credible pitchers at the time that he was facing for the first time, it was really special. And he became one of the best hitters, as you know. Look what he did with the Mets for so many years, over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we were very special friends, and I had to educate him a lot off the field. (laughs) Yeah. But we we had a lot of good times together when the young kid was outstanding. And also Gil Hodges uh, holds a special place in our hearts here, of course, we were fortunate enough to see him go into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown this summer. Uh, as, as you mentioned, Bob, you uh, played with him on the Brooklyn Dodgers, had some dealings with Gil, and he also brought you over to the Mets to try to fill the uh, third base hole, which seemed like uh, going on forever with the Mets. And uh, tell us a little bit about your experience with Gil. Well, Bill, that is very special. He, to me, was... He was a very special individual. We were so close. He took care of me when I was with the Dodgers as a young kid, 18 years old. He made me feel a little more comfortable on the field. Then we went to Los Angeles at the same time. He did the same thing. We had the relationship was very special. And then, naturally, as the years go along, we communicated through the different teams we played for. And it, it, when, it, it was so incredible when he took the managerial job there was always kind of questions about, oh, he might want to take myself over there with him once in a while. And sure enough, the conversation started, and he says, uh, Bobby, we're going to trade for you, and we're going to come bring you in. Now think about that. I started my career at 18 and finished with the New York Mets at 71. 
And Gil Hodges was there for me throughout all of that. Right. We were incredible, incredible friends and family. I'm so close to the family and, and that you, I'm so proud of that Hall of Fame. We worked so hard and this is an individual that deserved it on and off the field more than just about anybody. And it was great to see number 14 get that honor and uh, the, the Hall of Fame. And we lost him at such a young age. It was the most difficult time. Yeah. Very, very. He was so, what, what a special man. Very much deserving, and it was a shame when we did lose him so young, Bob. That's true. Now, speaking of number 14, I have to ask you now. <laughs> you wore number 14 for your whole career, and when you came to the Mets, you were giving Hodges a little ribbing saying, hey, can I have number 14 over here, right? <laughs> well, I, I said, you know, I wore number 14 because it killed Hodges my career. Right, was, yeah. So every time we were on the field again, I would turn over and see number 14, and he would laugh and carry on. Then we would join the ball club in spring training with the New York Mets, and I was kidding around. And I said, Gil, let me ask you something. You just sit the bench. Let me wear 14. Yeah. <laughs> he looked that big. He looked Bobby, you get number two. Right, yeah. <laughs> Oh, he was what a oh, what a great guy! A great man, Gil Hodges. A yes, very, very. He did. He helped me tremendously through my career. Bob Espermonti <laughs> on the program with us tonight. Now, when when you retired, you gave it one more shot. The uh, they they released you the New York Mets, but Sparky yeah. Anderson <laughs> brought you into spring training with the Reds. Tell us about a little bit about that experience, Bob. Well, you know, if you recall. The first two months when I was in the Mets, it was outstanding. I was able to do so much on the field, hitting, game-winning hits. And then I tore my calf muscle mm-hmm. in the beginning of June that year. Oh, it boy. was so tough to come off. I had to sit down and not to disable this for about two or three weeks, and I came back. But it was always painful. And then it just kind of never really went away. So Gil and I talked about it. He's probably, I guess, the best thing to do now you got your 15 career, 15 year career. It might be the ending. Yeah. And then Sparky Anderson just wanted to know if I was feeling better, called and I said, you know, I'm doing well. I'd like to try it. And then we went to spring training with the Reds with Sparky and, and for a little while it felt alright, but it's very difficult when you tear a calf almost at that age. Two Hall of Famers, Gil Hodges, Sparky Anderson. You're, you're, oh, in, yes. you're in with good company, Bob, that's for sure. Now, I, I wanted to ask you, to go back to Bill Bradley. In 2003, you had an accident with a car battery, and Bill came back into your life. Oh, exactly. Twelve years after his injury. Right. I'm helping somebody with a battery cable, and that's when they had individual caps in the battery. Oh, yeah. The battery was... And the individual one popped and hit me right at the side of my eye and oh. went through an awful lot. The same doctor that helped Bill Bradley, Louis Gerard, was there helping me throughout. And Bill Bradley, and we had all special events because I was very big with the Houston Eye Association the Foundation. So we had a lot of functions, and Bill Bradley attended those things. And it was very touching. Amazing. But we did, we did a, like I said, did an awful lot for a long period of time together. What a story. I, I, I got to tell people that one, Bob, in the future. Now, you, you had so many great, great times, gr- great experiences throughout your career. What would you say was your greatest thrill, Bob? Well, you know, the greatest thrill, naturally, when you take that feel of an 18-year-old kid and you're standing alongside the superstars of the game all 
and most valuable players alongside that that incredible feeling was was so strong it lasted so long and then to be able to go ahead and play with them until the Los Angeles but the other special thing was me taking this incredible Houston area uh, first ball player to join the Houston Co 45s mm-hmm. and watch the growth we took here three years of the Houston Co 45s and then we opened the Astrodome in 1965 and while we're playing on the Co 45 field, we were watching this incredible dome stadium being built. It, it was a really a highlight. It really was. And at the time, Houston's population, you know, it was like five or 600,000 in the city limits. But what the owners, Judge Warhoffines did, putting that dome together, was a selling point with the, with the major league franchises. And, and you made Houston your home after that. Well, I've been here. I'm going to, Give you a little head. Maybe about sixty years now. Whoa, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah you, I, I've been here since nineteen sixty-two. Yeah, amazing. Now, now, and, and, you know, I've been in the business community. I'm very active that way, but it was it was very special. I, I had always heard at the Colt Forty Fives ballpark, Bob, that there was a mosquito problem. <laughs> was it? Was that true? Yeah. Not only Mosquito, the heat was incredible. Oh, yeah. And a lot of the older players like Norm Locker, Eddie Casco, and Nellie Fox, well, they would take the field. <laughs> How could you play this when it was 100-degree temperatures <laughs> and during daylight hours? And uh, that's when we were so much younger. That we didn't realize we were just happy to play. And, oh, they couldn't believe it, what a reaction they had. It was tough. It really was the outdoor stadium, but... <laughs> Because we played all day games, you got to remember that, Bill. Right? Yeah. Oh, and that Texas heat. Yep, I can imagine. <laughs> and the fly, the mosquitoes flying all over. <laughs> Terrible. Now, now all, all the great guys we we've spoke about tonight, Bob. Who would you say was your greatest teammate? Well, it's really special. I, I hate that when I go back to Gil Hodges. He really was special to me. Mm-hmm. He really was as a teammate, as a great friend. And as a manager to finish up our relationship like that was very special. But we had a lot of great franchises that, yeah. that have, you know, produced a lot of great friends. And as we talked about, and Rusty was one of them. But you can go on and on with some of the players that we had, Bobby Lillis, and I can go on. So, so many. many to mention, Bob. That That's true. Well, I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night, Bob, to spend it with us up here in New York. It's been an honor and a pleasure. I thank you for coming aboard with us tonight, and uh, we'll stay in touch with you. Well, that's very special, Bill. I appreciate you, your invite, and that bringing back stories like this is incredible. So I appreciate that a lot. My pleasure, Bob. What it's done for me, too. My pleasure. All right, Bill. Thank you. You take care. That's Bob Aspermonte, folks. Well, that'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my wonderful guests, Sue Wicks and Bob Aspermonte, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you folks. Couldn't do it without you. Thanks for joining us. See you next on October 23rd with some more great sports talk, some great guests. Till then, be safe and be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.